Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 3 of Seen From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth Observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. In this episode, we're talking to Charlotte Bishop about GRSG and KSAT. So it's the 1st of April, 2020, and that's the news. I, I kind of wanted to mention at the start, we're in very odd, unusual times. And from a remote sensing point of view, uh, I wanted to sort of just mention as an aside that satellite images are being used in this pandemic to convey empty streets in optical data, reduced emissions from Dental 5P, monitoring things like best activity in shipping ports, just to sort of show the economic and environmental impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is worthy of pointing out, I think, because this is another way the general public is going to be consuming information about observation and remote sensing at this time. And it's and it's being used to convey what the impact on the lockdowns are pretty much across the world. One thing I came across today was an article about how aircraft were being stored at certain smaller airports. And actually, you can have a look at some of the freely available Sentinel-2 Earth observation data. And you can see that there's a whole host of uh, jet aircraft that are being stacked at more and more places. Yeah, hopefully we'll all be out of this soon and we'll be able to look back and see how Earth observation, remote sensing, geospatial in general, has been able to monitor the changes and, fingers crossed, hopefully help in some way as well in terms of bringing this all to an end. Okay, with that being said, let's <laughs> let's cheer up a bit if we can. Let's do some news. I wanted to talk about a nice page I found on Debit. Um, it's entitled How Satellite Images Could Improve Water Quality Management. Now, I'm always looking, especially in sort of recent podcasts that we've had, to try and broaden my horizons. And I think there's a Twitter account called Space in Africa. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's what we're following as well. So this article is interesting. And one of the things that it sort of struck me was a number of quotes in there, including one of the biggest challenges of dealing with water resource management is how are we going to manage it if we can't measure it, which is, you know, the first sort of point of call when you start talking to Earth observation data. And I, I thought that was great. There's a commonly held statement saying there's a lack of awareness about the data sets that are, that are readily available and, and the difficulty in getting access to that data. Which made me wonder, how easy is it to get free and open Earth observation data if English isn't your first language? I don't know, because I obviously consume everything in English. Or maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe the ubiquitousness of looking at a map and zooming in and, and drawing your bounding box and downloading them. I sometimes think the most obvious problems may be looking at us squarely in the face and we completely ignore them. I just say it as an interesting sort of observation in this <laughs> in this week's news. I just wanted to move on and talk about geostationary satellite data. Woo-hoo. So this is <laughs> the Japanese Meteorological Agency has been running the Himawari uh, geostationary meteorological satellites, which are based over the East Asian and West Central Pacific regions. And they collect weather data, I think every 10 minutes. And that's for the full disk of the Earth in that area. And those data are now being made available through um, open data on AWS. 
check out the link in the show notes and you'll be able to get that. Thank you, AWS, and thank you, Japanese Meteorological Agency as well. Certainly, um, AWS is becoming the place to go to find data, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is really the landing page that we should be pointing people out with because it's got loads of NOAA data sets, Digital Globe, Open Data Platform, everything. You can sort of send all the Sentinel stuff. Um, This is sort of constantly being being expanded. I'm just going to quickly talk about something that I came across, which is something called the Grow Observatory, which as far as I can tell, is a sort of citizen science, food, climate change, soils type of thing. And the reason I want to shout out about this was they had 18,500 citizen scientists collecting soil moisture data, and they used that as ground reference data for input into some Copernicus satellite data. So I'm guessing it's Sentinel-2. Again, if you're interested in all that sort of citizen science side of things, get involved and show them the power of Earth observation. It looks like they've already started. While you were talking, I was just trying to see what the trend for Google Earth Engine was. My sense is in the last 18 months or so that Earth Engine is rapidly becoming the thing in Earth observation. Yeah. And you know, we talk, we, we've always talked about it, or certainly I've always talked about it. And why do I mention this is because I came across this really interesting post called Community Data Sets in Google Earth Engine, an experiment. And so you can bring your own data and process it in Earth Engine. So a lot of people load up planet data or high resolution data and, and utilize the power of Earth Engine to, to, to do processing on it. And, and that's pretty interesting. And this particular post is um, taking data. It's a Facebook high resolution settlement data set. It sort of talks through the challenges of adding this data into Earth Engine. Okay. And it's really good. And, you know, the, the guy who's written it has written a number of scripts and, um, you know, has made them all available. The beautiful thing is here is once you put it up and you're prepared to share it, then anybody can use this data. So he's gone to the trouble of uploading it and cleaning it and making sure it's all okay. And now if we wanted to use it, we just point our scripts at his data set. Effectively, yes. Yeah, you can you can go ahead and do this. It really is, you know, a web-based GIS. It's still freely available to anybody with a, a Google account and permission to use it, but non-commercial. But I imagine if you and me were sitting in a university department now, and especially, you know, with your academic PhD hat on, I imagine you would be all over this, wouldn't you? I'm my mortarboard. Your mortarboard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Which I, I assume you're wearing now, right? <laughs> yeah, there's so many really cool tools like this. It's great that you can sort of upload this other data. And there's so much data there. You can suggest data sets. You know, they're really open to this kind of stuff. I just want to mention a news article that I saw in uh, <laughs> from Jonathan Amos on the BBC News. We need to get him on. Yeah, I was going to say, we should go back and count how many times we've said Jonathan Amos on BBC News in the podcast. It must be quite a few times. But it's about ice loss uh, from the Greenland ice cap. And this is really interesting. It's a project called Grace FO, which is the follow-on, Grace follow-on project. And Grace, the original Grace and also the Grace FO, they measure gravity and anomalies in gravity. And through that, you can then start to look at water loss or loss of mass from different parts of the world. Scientists who are working on this project have looked at uh, some of the signals coming from the Greenland area and calculated that Greenland shed 
600 billion tons of ice by the end of summer in 2019. Again, it's, it's really interesting just to see how some of these really niche sorts of platforms, so gravity monitoring satellites, are able to provide insight into things that are really important for how we're all going to be living. So yeah, I, I just thought this was a really cool story about using Earth observation data. So we are really lucky to have with us this episode, Charlotte Bishop. We've got a whole stack of things lined up, some really quite esoteric things to talk about. So okay. Charlotte, can you quickly introduce yourself and where you currently work and sort of what your history is? And then we'll crack on with some questions. Okay, great. Uh, no, and thank you so much, uh, Andy and Alistair. It's uh, an absolute pleasure to be uh, invited onto the podcast. So... My name is Charlotte Bishop and I work for a company called KSAT, which is Kongsberg Satellite Services, um, which is based in Tromsø in the north of Norway. And I've been working in remote sensing for oh, nearly 15 years. So I started as, a, as an Earth observation specialist and kind of developed my knowledge in terms of processing of satellite data, um, mainly optical, but also radar or SAR data as well. Um, and then over time, that's kind of developed into um, focusing more particularly on uh, spectral analysis, terrain analysis, um, optical applications in particular. So when I moved to, to KSAT a couple of years ago and took the leap to move to the Arctic Norway, I took on a role as a, as a project manager, but with a specialism on, uh, on particularly on optical data and land applications. So my role here is, is to lead those applications at KSAT, uh, some of which are a little bit new for some of the work we do at KSAT where traditionally KSAT is a ground station provider. So it's essentially providing antenna downlink capabilities for a whole range of different satellite operators from commercial systems to publicly owned systems. But the other side of the business where I work is, is also analysing some of that data and delivering services to clients. Um, traditionally, that has been very much focused on maritime applications and the use of radar. Um, so we do a lot of work with situational awareness, um, oil spill response, um, iceberg detection, vessel detection, those kind of applications. Um, but increasingly, we see movement towards more land applications, more optical data sets. And so the, the kind of combination of being able to downlink satellite data also in, in many cases, particularly with radar data systems, to have processes in-house at KSAT to be able to develop those products from, from the kind of raw signal that gets downlinked into data we can actually use and analyze. That sounds really cool. I think it'd be very remiss of me if I didn't pick up on the fact that you've moved from London to the <laughs> yeah. Arctic Circle. Yes. So you've made that jump between country and different organizations and quite a lot of our listeners will get the chance to do that at some point in their career. What's your experience been of going from one country to another and from one organization to another? What sort of things should you know our listeners be thinking of doing or, or what should they be aware of if they're thinking of doing something similar? That's a great question and and I admit that it was never something I thought about doing <laughs> until right. it happened. So essentially I uh, you know I, I, I worked in 
in the same company for about 12 years before I moved to a, a smaller company in London, a small startup which was, which was really cool, was doing some really exciting things. And an opportunity came up at, at CaseSat and CaseSat was a company that I knew very well. And I, I got in touch with them and, and they said, oh, we actually do have a job open at the moment, but it does mean you have to move to Tromso. And I was like, well, I, I'd only been to Tromso three, two or three times for about 24 hours each before. So I was like, oh, well, it's... It has the northern lights and it's uh, quite snowy. It's quite a pretty place. Oh, <laughs> I can consider it. So I, uh, uh, I admit it was it was never something I thought about doing, but I am it's like so delighted that I did it. I think it's such a fantastic experience to to work in a different culture. I mean, KSAT is an international organization. Okay, we're based in the Arctic, which is you know, a little bit remote in comparison, but we're actually reasonably well connected up here. It's a small place. You see, see it on a map and you see how far north it is. It uh, seems a bit scary. And it, it, it was. It was a kind of difficult decision to make to leave everything I've ever known, basically, to move to, to Norway. But I think what, what I found at least as a comfort in, in Norway and probably the same in much of Europe is that uh, the English is very good, much better than mine at times, <laughs> that's totally how I feel. And the kind of system here, the kind of national insurance system, the, the state system, I guess, is, is not really that dissimilar to the UK. Tax is, is higher, but in principle, the, the kind of access to healthcare and um, yeah. other facilities is 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 really the same or better so are you learning norwegian i am <laughs> don't, don't test me on it um, <laughs> i am but it's, it's quite a difficult language and and because in, yeah. in principle we're, we're working so much more with international clients than with norwegian clients because you compare norwegian population is 5.8 million people which is less than is in london so we we do have a norwegian clients but we don't we have more that are non-norwegian i guess my advice if someone's debating what to do i guess it depends a little bit on the industry that you're in but i think in in an industry like space it's a it's a fantastic opportunity to get a different kind of experience and and to to learn as a downlink company are you finding any competition or any collaboration with the AWS downlink stuff that's come out? Yeah, that's a, that's also a very good question. It's it's something that the team that works on that side of the business, and I, I won't profess to know exactly <laughs> all of the details, but there is competition coming up, and, and AWS would would be you know one of those that would be consideration. However, at the same breath, it's how can we work together as well and yeah, collaboration yeah. where possible is is actually more powerful, of course. So um, I know that's something that internally at case that we work to was with with any of these things we're always trying to develop new solutions new downlink capabilities new opportunities to allow uh, to kind of break down some of the barriers with access to, to space and downlink um so yeah. you know whether you're a startup or you're a much larger company how can you know just changing that model provide a, a solution that's going to be useful i've known charlotte for how long over a decade yeah yeah at so, least over a decade i mean i i sort of <laughs> I mean, I could ask you a whole heap of different questions. <laughs> where, where would I start? And I kind of wondered if I was going to sort of go, 
I'm going to give you some uh, specifications of a satellite. You're going to tell me which one, oh, which one I'm talking about. That would be I hope you're not going to do that. <laughs> no, I'm not. I really am not. I was just going to ask you quickly before I sort of talk about the things I'd like to talk about, like the GRSG and um, uh, you know the data side of things. But forty thousand downlinks, any satellite, yeah? Yes, 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 yeah. yes. So yeah, yeah, and it's optical and SAR, but it's also a, a mixture. It's not necessarily all Earth observation satellites or even low Earth orbit satellites. It could be stationary it could be comm satellites as well so it's, it's a whole host of different things many of which i have no idea you know we go to the operations room and there's you know this wall of screens with all of these downlinks that we're managing and um, we manage all of that from tromso um all over the world oh, i've always wanted a job with a wall of screens that's by the manister yeah well yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're free that's now you must have all the money <laughs> I assume that you basically sell a slot almost, is it? Is that a bandwidth for? Um, I admit I'm not entirely sure how that process works exactly. The locations of the ground stations is very much tied to you know, polar orbiting satellites or at least where most of those overpasses will be. So we have a, a huge ground station. The, the biggest in the world, in fact, is on Svalbard, which is a case oh, really? owned ground station. Yeah. And so that has, oh, I think it's it's over a hundred antennas on it now. It's 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 vast. But that allows every single possible orbit from a polar orbiting satellite to be seen by the antenna. We have an equivalent station in, in Troll in Antarctica, which can see 12 of the possible 14 overpasses or orbits of the satellite. So it can see most of them. So between the two stations plus Tromso, um, we can see, yeah, I think it's about 28 passes a day. So it's, it's pretty yeah, you cool. Have, you have to go there now. That's just That'd be awesome. Like, yeah, and I've, I've been to Svalbard. Svalbard is, it is such an incredible place. And the, the station we have up there is, uh, I felt like such a nerd but it's uh it is just <laughs> it's mind-blowing you just yeah. it just looks like you have these uh uh, this whole kind of set of golf balls, basically, because all of the antennas are being protected from from the weather, of course. Let's sort of talk about the GRSG, which is Geological Remote Sensing Group, which uh, been reappointed chair. I'm always yes. well, do I say chairperson or do I say chairman? I'm not quite I sure. Go with all... chairman. You I go, go with chairman. chairman. Okay. Yep, yep, okay. So fine. chairman. I mean, that's quite an achievement, isn't it, to be reappointed? We'll talk about the GRSG and your role in that. But I look back over the. A presentation that you gave to the Geological Society on the satellite top trumps. Yes. In 2018, it was. I thought it was really interesting because you get the same questions over and over again, which is, yeah. "Hey, space junk and military satellites, are we all being yeah. spied on? When are we going to break out of this? That the media is selling us these, these sort of stories that we're constantly being watched. Do you think people are worried about this stuff? Because it, it does keep coming up. I think the world is changing and, and we see, I mean, the exponential increase in the number of satellites that are being launched. I can understand from a, you know, from a normal person, a non-satellite remote sensing person, to understand what that means and the implications of that can be can be quite difficult. And I think it's really hard, as, as I'm sure you both have found from speaking with clients, to really explain to a client how this whole process works. A satellite's not, you can't just turn a satellite around to take a picture unless it's on their orbital path, it happens to be passing at that time. And, it, and of course, it has a particular time of day it's collecting based on its kind of orbital pattern and, and the structure of that. And 
that is changing some of these uh, these inclined orbits that are coming with optical and um, and possibly with SAR satellites as well over the next couple of years I think will mean that there's more images at different times of day but in in reality I think we have to be reasonably realistic that whilst there are some really amazing capabilities from space um, and obviously with commercial data which we know more of than the military but I think whether someone could be detected and tracked in the similar kind of way that we may have seen on movies like Enemy of the State and things like that is that's unrealistic. My sort of issue is I guess I see these articles in mainstream media that talk about the new launch of a satellite are often worldview two three or, or four when that went up there was always an article saying, look at these you know, beautiful pictures and, you know, it, it, it's great. But there's a subcontext saying, um, and now it's, it's uh, sensing at 31 centimetres or whatever the lowest resolution is. Yeah. Um, and then they pick out something that's 31 centimetres and say, it can see that now. But I think it's misleading because I think in reality, it's not, it's not being used. OK, yes, there is a defence application and particularly with those, those satellites. Um, for sure. A lot of this information is kind of situational awareness and, and really high resolution mapping to, to provide more you know, de-risked information to help people make better decisions and the better quality the data is, whether it's resolution, spatial resolution or spectral resolution, you know, all of that has, has an impact on, on the information that we can gather. Quite often people are talking about this geospatial 2.0 idea and there's this Earth Observation 2.0 and ESA refer to it as Space 4.0. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. we've, we've talked on this podcast a lot about the nomenclature and the, the you know, potential confusion and one of the things that you're seeing in in the sort of geological side of remote sensing that that are, that are interesting and what the kind of things that the GRSG has seen the kind of beauty of the GRSG is is it kind of covers any kind of application that's geologically related so that could be anything from geohazards engineering you know geology minerals oil and gas planetary science and it, you know the the kind of list is endless from that respect but but what uh, what we have seen, I think, over the last couple of years in particular is papers more focused on data fusion, on machine learning applications, on automation. And so, so topics that in the past have been difficult to prove how automation can, can really provide value, for example, in, um, say, offshore oil spill detection, where there are other features that can be confused with, with oil spills, you know, natural features. But there are, it's a lot of work that's being done on on automation of that and we've seen some presentations over the last couple of years of, of different research groups who are looking at how to automate those processes but we also see the kind of growth of those types of applications and and moving not moving away completely from the expertise and the people expertise because I think those will at least for the next foreseeable future will, will always be essential and critical to making sure that the right information is being extracted and the right considerations are made by these these algorithms. So, so what's the driver behind that? Because I got the impression that the mapping of geology and trying to find new deposits of things and new geological forms, that was well on the way to being solved in inverted commas. Is the driver these days to basically try and minimise the environmental impact of mining and that type of thing? Probably more, I can speak to more on the oil and gas side, more so just because of experience has led me more in that direction. But right. but what we've seen, particularly in the last few years, is, is much more of a focus on a kind of remediation 
um, maybe operational impact of activities rather than necessarily the exploration side. And that's that's been a little bit because, of course, the oil and gas um, price crash, but but also equivalently with with mining that's also suffered over the last um, you know five to ten years. There is some exploration still happening, and actually, remote sensing then has has really quite a an interesting part to play because it was often unless people understood the technology it wasn't being used in the right way at the right time so it really has value for a lot of these applications as a as a precursor to a, a ground survey or to a more detailed aerial survey or lidar or whatever because i was on a call a couple of weeks ago and someone was talking about some of the really big mining operations in australia and yeah. how they are looking to use earth observation data much more than they currently are and i was really Really surprised that they're not already all doing that. It seemed like if there's an obvious use of Earth observation, that would be it. Using whether that's drones or aircraft or or satellites, but yeah, I was really surprised. That no, they... that's that's a very good point, particularly with the emissions. I think and and from satellite, that's a relatively new capability, and and still still has a little way to go. I think to to be really at the place it wants to be. But we do now have satellites that can detect um, you know, methane. Um, and you know, that are providing some really useful information over over areas where, of course, that information before wasn't being recorded, or it was certainly not from satellite. And the cost of doing an aerial survey or a drone survey or um, you know, fingerprinting gases locally at a site was was just getting prohibitively expensive. Okay, thanks for that. And um, just one quick final question. So there's a potential for new companies to be seen to be overselling themselves through social media. And not everybody, customers included, knows what to accept and what to reject in terms of some of the, dare I say it, hype. What are your thoughts on that? I think there there are a, a number of these new companies coming online they're either satellite companies themselves or they are service companies with new algorithms and things and i think the the danger with some of them not all of them for sure but the danger with some of them is that they're um there is not enough substance behind what it is they're actually doing but there's also maybe a and maybe that's a sweeping statement but but i think it's true i think it's difficult to be able to how do you know as a as a user as a uh, someone who's new to the industry, um, whether this is the right, the the kind of right process, and that can be uh, that can be very tricky if if you see a lot of promotion from a particular company or a particular group. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's it, it can be challenging at this time, I think, as well, um, as there's a lot of noise in space, and it's very exciting, but it's it can also be misleading for, for people who are new to the industry. Sadly, we've run out of time, but it's just, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Charlotte. You're so knowledgeable. Oh, thank you. Re- really brilliant to have you on. Thanks so much for coming on and fa- thank you for your time. Stay warm. Thank you very much. No, thank you guys. It has been an absolute pleasure. We encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom, where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Bye. Bye-bye. A billion of anything is a lot. Not an easy
Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.